As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Right now, our conversation of the day synthesizing all this together Torsten Stock is chief economist at Apollo Global Management. Torsten, I'm going to pull in here a whole bunch of threads. The Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index is showing massive accommodation. And yet I look at the old LIBOR, the new SOFR, SOFR, and I'm seeing huge restriction within the short-term paper market, tensions on Wall Street, and illiquidity on Wall Street. How, how urgent is it for the Fed to make some direction on a March cut or dare I even say, a January first cut? Well, it has a number of different dimensions. First, there is the dimension on the real economy. It's clear that the Fed pivot has eased financial conditions dramatically. And this begins to run the risk that we might see a repeat of what happened after Silicon Valley Bank. Remember, Chris Waller just said a few weeks ago, the easing of financial conditions in Q2, that boosted GDP growth to 5% in Q3. Could we see the same now where the easing of financial conditions after the Fed pivot might actually be boosting the housing market, the labor market, services inflation, goods inflation? We are not out of the woods when it comes to battling inflation. So on the real economy, absolutely, the easing of financial conditions is very supportive. There are some issues when it comes to the plumbing, when the tightness, as you're highlighting, in very short-term markets, and the Fed for sure has to play this difficult talk of war between do we want to ease financial conditions on the risk side or how much can we ease financial conditions in the very front end of the curve. But this is the challenge for the Fed at the moment that you're highlighting. Torsten, you didn't listen. They didn't respond to the idea of financial conditions. They didn't seem to think it mattered at all at the last press conference. Why should it matter now? I mean, were we going to actually hear them come back and say, actually, just kidding about that financial conditions question? Well, they were debating in October and September, well, maybe financial conditions have done a lot of the work for us. And now they're saying, well, maybe financial conditions, it doesn't really matter because it can fluctuate so much. So I still think that it's a little bit inconsistent what they're saying when the data dependency, it only talks about the real data. 
Whereas the financial conditions impulse, if you take the easing in financial conditions that we have had since the Fed pivot and stuff it into FERPAS, the Fed's model of the US economy, you will get a boom of up to 1.5% growth over the next several quarters in GDP. It's going to be very supportive as a tailwind to the economic outlook. Although we did have uh, Gennady on earlier of TD Securities, and he said even with this idea that inflation could remain stickier, that we could get this ongoing growth, the Fed could still cut rates and still be restrictive given the positive real rate. Do you ascribe to that kind of thing, or do you think that this means uh, many fewer rate cuts going forward for the Fed? I think that's absolutely right. That We have, of course, for the better part of the last year, we have talked about higher for longer. Now the conversation is more restrictive for longer, because they can still be restrictive if inflation is coming down, because real interest rates is what matters. So if real interest rates are still positive as inflation comes down, the Fed can accordingly also gradually begin to lower rates. But note also that if you look at the outlook for SOFA futures, as also Tom was mentioning, you still have that the bottom will still be around three and a half, four percent. So one very important conclusion for asset allocation is that we are not going back to zero. We have still higher for longer in the sense that the level of interest rates, the level of the risk-free rate on page one in your finance textbook will be significantly higher for the next several years than where it was from the period from 2008 to 2022. Let's try and get to the heart of what we're discussing here, the interest rate sensitivity of the US economy. Exactly. Now, what we've seen over the last two years is rates go up aggressively and not slow down the economy. And what you're suggesting is that as rates start to come in and financial conditions ease, that the economy picks up again. Can you help explain that to people, why higher rates haven't slowed the economy down, but easing financial conditions will boost it? Yeah, but what's very important in that debate, and that's also taking place on Twitter and X, of course, here at the moment, is that it is I live very, very critically sophisticated important analysis. to remember that that is significantly a function of whether you talk about the interest rate sensitive components of GDP or the non-interest rate sensitive components of GDP. If you split GDP into the cyclical components and the non-cyclical components, the main component that is sensitive to interest rates is housing. And housing did respond dramatically to higher rates. So this whole idea that the economy didn't respond to higher rates, that's just completely wrong. Of course, the economy responded to rates. It was the interest rate sensitive parts that responded to rates going up. <coughs> housing started slowing down. But the non-interest rate sensitive components, in this case, travel, restaurants, hotels, after COVID, had such a long tailwind that that more than dominated the slowdown in the housing market. So splitting that debate away from the academic textbook, which we all love, is so important because it becomes so critical to think about, did the parts of the economy that are sensitive to interest rates, did they actually respond and absolutely, in particular housing, capex, also commercial real estate, things that are sensitive to interest rates, they did absolutely respond to when interest rates went up. This is a fantastic explanation, so let's build on it. Let's project this out. What are the forecasts now for you for GDP in the next couple of quarters? We heard from the likes of Max Kettner of HSBC, who said the biggest risk right now is that we have to reprice rates again higher because exactly of what you're talking about. What are you looking for in the data? Well, if I type ECFC go on my Bloomberg screen, I will see that over the next six months, we are very close to zero, 0 0.4 and 0 0.5 on GDP for Q1 and Q2. So the consensus answer to your question is GDP growth is continuously slowing as a result of the Fed's campaign of hiking rates. The new risk that has emerged is that because of the Fed pivot, that means that the interest rate sensitive components that were dragging down GDP for the better part of last mm -hmm. year, they might now begin to rebound. Housing, most importantly, Case Shiller is now up 5%. Case Shiller is a very important leading indicator for the OER, meaning the shelter components of the CPI, and shelter makes up 40% of the index. So that means that if something that makes up 40% of the index is about to rebound, we could come back right. to that discussion about maybe the rates markets will have to reprice to higher for longer and more restrictive for longer. I just looked at the two-year inflation-adjusted yield. I haven't looked at it since time began. Nixon was president. And I can use the word never 
over 20 years. The integrand or the duration of a high two-year real rate we've never seen. We had a spike in 08 with the great financial crisis, but these sustained high two-year real yields are absolutely unprecedented for global Wall Street. How unstable are we right now? I would say, at least from a Fed perspective, if you just take the economics textbook out and think about what matters, it is absolutely, as you're highlighting, real rates. So real rates being at these levels would tell you that we're still in very restrictive territory. So the challenge here for the Fed is that they still want to have the soft landing, and we all want to have the soft landing. That would be the best outcome, of course, from so many dimensions. But what is beginning to matter is that they have now sucked so much liquidity out. We've gotten to a point where we are beginning to see some strains in the plumbing that you're highlighting. And that's why real rates it has a very significant different impact on the long end and what it means for the real economy relative to what high real rates means for the front end and what it means for financial markets. At Austin, this has been an absolute... Cameron Dawson joins us now, Chief <coughs> Investment Officer at New Edge Wealth. Cameron, good morning and Happy New Year. Good morning, Happy New Year. Are you sitting on the fence? Because I'm reading this first line in your work. It says, <laughs> we could have a scenario where both bulls and bears are right this year. Which one is it? Well, I think that we have to be nimble because I believe that there is going to be a scenario where you could very easily see people get drawn even further into this market. We think positioning is overweight, but not quite as extreme as it was in times like 2021 or 2018. So you could see some pain get pulled in. But the other reality is that you could see a rationalization of the fact that sentiment is very extended and that valuations are extended. So it's how you react to market rallies or market corrections, I think, is how you will win in 2024. We mentioned HSBC. So let's talk about the work coming from Max Kettner this morning. Here's this line. Biggest risk, another repricing in rates. Do you agree with that? A hundred percent. That's the pain trade. The pain trade is that everybody thinks that inflation is fully vanquished and then gets surprised if things like oil prices move higher, wages end up being stickier than expected, rates move higher, and then all of those stocks that re-rated in the last two months up 30 40% because now they're not worried about their balance sheets anymore. Balance sheet risk becomes an issue again, and you get a reversion of a lot of the names that were lower quality that happened to lead at the end of last year. The modeled out earnings are 9%, 10%, dare I say double-digit 11% earnings growth for this year. Is that in the price now, or is that going to develop out in the first half of next year? It is in the price now, and I think that we always have to think about the path of 24 will be pricing in what actually happens in 2025. So if a recession looks more likely in 2025, that's when you'll start to see those earnings estimates get cut into the out years. The thing that's the biggest challenge for us for earnings estimates in 24 is the expectation that top-line growth will re-accelerate in a year where nominal growth because of inflation is expected to decelerate. Can you see that happen at the same time where we get less inflation, totally less pricing power, right. and yet we get a big acceleration in top line? So away from the romance of Apple and Microsoft, if you look at staples and discretionary and all, you, you've got a model out there, what? You go back from a 6% wonderment of growth back to 4% revenue growth? Yeah, very likely. And there are idiosyncratic pockets yeah. where you're going to see improvement. You know, health 
healthcare had its earnings down almost 20% last year. That will flip positive this year just because of easy comps. So that's where we're trying to look outside of just the, the, the macro drivers, Staples being a great example of one that can't get away from this inflationary dynamic and look instead to the more idiosyncratic opportunities. Are banks idiosyncratic opportunities? <laughs> I ask with JP Morgan at new record highs. Yeah, I mean, you've seen such a huge re-rating. Of course, there's pockets of banks where there is still inexpensive areas. You know, banks do have the tailwind of a less inverted curve, hopefully a reopening of capital markets. But then we have to consider things like BTFP, does it get re-extended, Basel III Endgame, all of these things that could be big drivers of bank earnings or at least appetite for bank risk as we go through 2024. It sounds like you're not buying the rotation story. I am buying the rotation story. Yeah, I, I think that we have to have an open mind that even great companies with great balance sheets, with near monopolies, could still underperform simply because positioning is so crowded and because right. valuations are so elevated. That's the smartest insight I've heard in the last 48 hours. Are we going to have rotation or not? That's a really, really undersaid well, question. I think that that was really some of the angst behind the sell-off that we've seen yeah. that was living, uh, that was really led by big tech. We were talking about this yesterday with Apple, and I guess that you know how much does that have legs versus what we saw last year, which was a head fake, and everyone came in saying, "All right, this is the year to sell tech." And by the end of the year, everyone was saying, "Nvidia, Magnificent Seven, it's going to change the world. Kumbaya, it's going to save the United States." I mean, et cetera, et cetera. And what a different setup, because at the very end of 20. 2022, you had record outflows from tech ETFs. You look at the course of 2023, you had $40 billion of inflows into technology compared to $20 billion of outflows out of things like energy and financials and healthcare. So really, this could just be about positioning and pain trades and the fact that you already re-rated tech because now it's already just one turn away from its 2021 peak valuation. So you're hitting a ceiling. Let's put a couple of stories together. You said maybe the biggest pain trade, the risk here is higher rates, the repricing of rates again. Lisa brought up banks. How would the banks respond to that, given what we saw last year? Yeah, I mean, it, it would raise balance sheet risk again. It probably puts into sharp focus again issues with commercial real estate, because we've all kind of breathed this collective sigh of relief that higher for longer is dead. If it's not dead and the path of the cost of capital instead of the last 40 years of being down is actually marching slightly higher and in a, you know, in a choppy path could mean that we have to reprice some of the risk in some of these balance sheets. Is it just JP Morgan then everyone else? <laughs> when we talk about the banks, is that what we're talking about? JP Morgan then everybody else? We actually just are looking very deeply at some of the regional banks. Some of the regional banks are underpriced, we think. If we look at the balance sheets, they're not as extended as, as, or as issued as some parts of regional banks that some don't have as much commercial real estate exposure, have great presence in their local areas. So they're trading at very discounted valuations. If we're going down in value, that's one of the areas we're actually looking. Yeah, but somebody had over, you know, the last five, six, seven days at JP Morgan's capturing one out of five profit dollars in American <laughs> banking. If that isn't the third or fourth or fifth national bank of the United States, I don't know what is. I there mean, is nothing else. It's JP Morgan versus everyone else. That's been a story the last year. I'll defer to our guest on this, but yeah, I mean, they're capturing some 20% of profits according to the source. I'm sorry, I don't have the source in front of me to cite. I think it's, it's the it's the Bramo newsletter. You know that, newsletters. It's a must-read. It's a must-read. Cameron, thank you. <laughs> got to leave it there. It's good to catch up. It's good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy Cameron year. Dawson there of New Edge Wealth. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's get right to it. This is so important right now. Dan Ives joins us. He is a bull on any number of technology companies. We wait for him to come out on controlled data here and with a buy recommendation at some point. That's a little bit of history there. Dan Ives with Wedbush. Dan, what's a channel check? What exactly is a channel check? I just, I just don't see it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, look, for us, in terms of our Asia supply chain checks, really trying to focus on what demand looks like in terms of the suppliers for iPhones. There have been no cuts from an iPhone perspective as of date. And I think that's that's bullish. And ultimately, that shows demand through holiday season has actually been on par to actually better right. than expected. And to me, that's what I focus on rather than the haters continue. Okay, but Dana, tell, okay, you've been, you've been gracious about this, and they've been gracious about your 2023 ginormous success. But when you do a channel check, are you counting iPhones? Are you over in China guessing the manufacturing line? Are you in the store on Madison Avenue looking at how many people from Lisa's family are buying Apple loot? What's a channel check? Yeah, all of the above, Tom. I mean, we, we feel we're in Apple stores around the country, around the world. We're also talking to suppliers, basically trying to triangulate to what we think units is going to look like for the quarter and for the year. And that's how we've done it from the beginning, I mean, over the last decade. So, and it's one, you're always going to have differing opinions. You talk about the Barclays uh, downgrade. We continue to stick with our checks that, that has navigated us, you know, a lot more right than wrong. I think when you look at iPhone 50, it's easy to take shots, you know, relative to, to maybe some of the fears out there, especially fire in a crowded theater, first day of the trading, you know, year. <laughs> I, it's a Groundhog Day. You know, we saw it last year as well. It's underestimated. $250 million is the install base upgrade cycle that's due in that window, has an upgrade in four years. Dan, let's get into it. You mentioned Barclays, Tom mentioned it too, I mentioned it. So let's get to that line. The continued period of weak results coupled with multiple expansion, not sustainable. In that is a statement of fact, and then there's an opinion at the end. The statement of fact is iPhone sales. They haven't been great for the last 12 months. That's a fact, yet it's been coupled with multiple expansion. Also, a fact. The opinion piece is they're saying it's not sustainable. Are you suggesting that it is? Yeah, so what I'm suggesting is that the next three to four quarters, you're going to have iPhone growth. 
you have growth coming out of China, despite the fears and obviously a lot of the bear noise. And I think the most important thing is services. I and mean, I think services is going to be teenager type of growth. That's key to the multiple expansion story. And then we go into later this year, there's just going to be more monetization from an AI, as we talked about. That's going to be the next layer. I think it all results in this is going to be viewed as more of a golden buying opportunity rather than the start to you know hit the elevator exit. How much, Dan, is your bullish call predicated on this idea of rate cuts, the idea of rates coming down as much as people think? Yeah, look, that's probably... Five ten percent from a multiple perspective. I mean, as we saw twenty two, the disaster twenty three in terms of now popcorn moment in terms of Fed going to cut in twenty four. Look, it speaks to our overall bull tech thesis, right? That the soft landing, Pillsbury Doughboy soft landing. You're starting to see now more and more focus on tech. I do think now, you know, as Pharaohs talked about, multiple expansion in 23, I think the numbers show it in 24. That's the difference. 24 is where the numbers come through intact. 23 was more the multiple expansion. When you mentioned China and how China demand is going to pick back up, but I wonder if it's going to be for iPhones, and I know we've been talking about this for a long time, but yesterday this caught my attention. The Chinese automaker, BYD, surpassed Tesla in terms of uh, deliveries for the first time. You're seeing that really start to be a main theme. People said that that was never going to happen. People say that it's never going to happen, that Chinese consumers are going to throw out their iPhones. What makes you so confident that we're not going to see the same thing happen in the iPhone cycle that we're seeing right now in the electric vehicle one? Yeah, great question. And, and look, when you focus on Tesla, I mean, that, that's essentially a two-horse race between Tesla and BYD. Tesla actually beat numbers, and China was strong for them. But I think it does speak to, look, domestically, BYD, they're a beast. I mean, they, they've done a phenomenal job, but Tesla is also going to be aware there in China. When you look at what's happening within the China market from an iPhone perspective, it speaks to just the massive install base that they've built in China. You have 100 million iPhones in China right now, a window of an upgrade opportunity. And the irony is, despite geopolitical, the last 18 months, Apple's gained 300 bips of market share because the average high-end, I'd say middle-income Chinese consumer, they want an iPhone despite government basically trying to push Huawei. Dan, I'm so pleased that Lisa brought up the EV comparison because I think that industry right now has the potential to be the industry story of 2024. Dan, beyond BYD, beyond Tesla, how much of a reality check are we getting for the industry, for the likes of GM and Ford? I think a big reality check. That's why you've seen Farley, I think Mary, they pull back you know, in terms of a bit from the EV strategy in Detroit. And, and the problem here is, do, do consumers want EV or they just want a Tesla? And, and I think that that's really the issue that's really starting to play out. And, and at this point, Tesla's doubling down on EVs. But no doubt, there's been, I think, much more moderate demand that we're seeing across the board. And, uh, you know, I think as that plays out, you're going to see others peel back while others go more aggressively like the likes of the Tesla. I wonder what you think the end game actually is. If you speak to the leadership at GM, at Ford, they've been generous with their time. We've had this conversation with them. They talk about a change in execution, maybe not a change in strategy. Would you expect to see a change in strategy this year? And what would that look like? I think slight change in strategy where maybe they, they pull back on some of their long-term numbers in terms of EV, when they expect to go fully EV, you know, as it goes 2034, 2035. Look, the UAW also put their back against the wall. It's a different cost structure. 
and and they're trying right now to it's a tight balancing act that they're trying to get to in Detroit. And I think also it's tough going up against the likes of Tesla and some of these other EVs. That's been a big part of the problem that they're focused on, especially now with the UAW increasing the cost structure. Well said, Dan. Good to hear from you. Happy New Year, sir. Dan Ice of Wedbush. Joe Cassidy, large cap bank analyst at RBC Capital Markets, writing this. After a tumultuous 2023, we believe the banks are well positioned for investors to earn outsized returns in 2024, and investors should overweight the sector in their portfolios. Joe Cassidy, I'm <coughs> pleased to say, joins us now. Joe, let's go straight to it. Number one question. This is a question for me, and I know it's a question for Lisa. Is this off the back of higher yields or lower yields? I would say, John, that uh, we're expecting that the yields gravitate lower, especially at the front end of the curve. When you take a look at what the Fed has done, if we truly are at the terminal rate for Fed funds in the past four tightening cycles, when they started to cut rates, it's always been a catalyst for bank stocks. And I think what we're expecting, as the market is, that at some point in 24, the Fed could cut short-term interest rates. Is this for bank stocks or is this for J.P. Morgan? Lisa, very good question because J.P. Morgan has been the risk-off trade and it's been spectacular, as you guys mentioned, record highs. And so if we're going into a risk-on environment, which I believe we are if the Fed is finished tightening, then actually J.P. Morgan's probably going to be a source of funds for many investors. It is a stock that is owned everywhere. It's been a great stock. But risk-on may be the better way to go with a Bank of America or Citigroup or others like that. A source of funds. I love that. It's a euphemism for it gets sold so that you can raise money to buy something you think is going to return more. The fact that you think it's going to be Bank of America, do you also lean into the Mike Mayo idea that Citigroup and its whole revamp with some of its uh, streamlining, <clears throat> cutting units, massive job cuts is going to be the real winner? Over time, it's going to be certainly an opportunity to be a winner. Uh, they've still got a lot of heavy lifting. Jane Frazier's leading the charge here, of course. And I think it's a very uh, big, complicated job. It's turning around an ocean liner. There's early progress, a lot of heavy lifting, as I said, to do. But if she can succeed and the management succeed, this stock is definitely undervalued and it has great upside. But it's been a value trap for many years, so we'll have to wait and see. Gerard, I went to a seminar once at a firm long ago called Tucker Anthony and RL Day, and I was lectured that banks are supposed to return nominal GDP plus a little bit. I'm going to center tendency is that make an 8, 9, 10% once in your lifetime. JP Morgan has turned that upside down. You didn't see this coming. You're the expert, nor did anybody else. The returns of 10 years, of 20 years, are 15% or so, their 30-year return is solid double-digit return. What did Harrison, what did Diamond get right? Tom, it's really Jamie Diamond, I think. Or you could get, give Harrison credit, I guess, for merging with Bank One when Jamie Diamond was their CEO, and of course, Diamond has taken over since then. And it's been his steadfast focus on delivering for shareholders, both through expansion and growth, but at the same time controlling expenses. They also have done a very good job in diversifying their revenue. Their consumer banking business, similar to Bank America, 
is very, very profitable. On top of that, they've got a, a very strong capital markets business, the Bear Stearns acquisition, which was very difficult in early years because of the reputational problems that came along with it, has worked right. out extremely well for them. So I would say the diversity of revenue, Tom, and the focus on leading or delivering for shareholders. But back to Andrew Jackson, who you covered you know, years ago, Gerard. I mean, <laughs> are they the fifth bank of the United States? Over the holidays, somebody said one out of five profit dollars comes to J.P. Morgan. They're building their palace on, fifth, on Park Avenue right now. I mean, to the Butch Cassidy idea, who are these guys? Are they the bank of the United States? I, I don't think they're the bank of the United States, but they have done a great job in delivering for their shareholders and, and for their employees and their communities as well. It's been a big growth engine for the company, this economy, the global economy as well. And again, it's this leadership that they have under Diamond and his executive management team. And Tom, you know, many of his senior folks have left J.P. Morgan or are now CEOs of other uh, banks like Charlie Sharp at Wells Fargo. And so he's got a very deep bench and they execute. That's, and that's the key, Tom. You know, banking is a commodity business, as you well know. It's all about execution. And J.P. Morgan is executed extremely well. What is the business model, though, that you want to execute as a big U.S. bank chart? And this, I think, is one of the key questions that we had during last year when the rise of private capital, uh, private equity, private debt really was challenging the capital markets activity of certain big financial institutions. Can the J.P. Morgans, the Bank of America's, the Citigroup's get into the private debt world that in some ways has been stealing their lunch? I think it can, Lisa. And when you think about it, and you're right, the private equity, private debt area is certainly growing much faster than the banks. But believe it or not, the shadow banking industry has been taking the bank's market share for 40 years. You go back to the early 80s and you look at the market share that the banks had of lending into the United States, it was well over 40%. The private or shadow banking market was in the low 20s. Today, it's completely flip-flopped. The bank's market share now is in the low 20s and the shadow banking is in the 50, over 50%. So the banks have done it through consolidation. You know, when Tom and I were young, we had over 18,000 banks in the United States in the early 1980s. Today, there's 4,600. JP Morgan has been a big beneficiary of that and they've been able to create those efficiencies. So yes, they can compete, they will compete. And I don't think that the banks are going to be put out of business, but certainly they don't have the market share that they used to have. But we have to remember, too, the economy has grown dramatically in 40 years, and they have a smaller slice of the pie, but they're more profitable than ever. Not if, just J.P. Morgan, but other banks as well. What about the smaller banks, given the fact that they uh, you're talking about a bigger slice of uh, just overall activity? You haven't seen that so much in the smaller banks. And with rates remaining high, you're going to have real commercial real estate pressures as well. It's interesting. It depends on uh, you know how small the bank is and who owns it. I've always maintained this banking system we have in the United States is obviously very polarized. You got the very small banks at one end and the very large banks at the other end. And if it's a non, if it's if the owners of the smaller banks, private banks or mutual savings banks or another group of banks, if their owners are comfortable with earning returns on equities of four or five percent and they're not going to sell the bank as long as they have fdic insurance they're going to remain in business indefinitely on the other end if you do have a bank with 30 billion in assets 
and it's not earning up to what its shareholders want it to earn, then they're going to have to consolidate. So consolidation is going to continue. We're in a pause right now, but the long-term trend has been consolidation, and the industry will continue to consolidate in the future, in our view. Jared, let's finish on Washington, if we can. I was speaking to your colleague, Amy with Silverman, just yesterday, and we reflected on a line that came from Laurie Cavacina, who I think described presidential politics and the election on the horizon like staring at the sun. I just wonder if that's what it's like for you. Have you given any thought to changes in leadership in Washington and what it might mean for the companies that fall under your coverage? John, it's a good question because it's going to be the topic du jour this year, of course, with the election coming. And what we can say is that under the current administration, there's been more regulation of banks, particularly with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We don't know who's going to be running, you know, just yet in November. But if Trump is the candidate for the other party, the Republican Party, and if he was to win, his administration had less regulation for banks. So if that administration was to come back, you would have to expect they would change the heads of different regulatory agencies in 2025. And there probably would be less regulation for yeah. the banks as we move forward. You know, John, I think Bloomberg Radio is missing it today because we're seeing the fireplace with Gerard Cassidy here on Bloomberg Television. The warmth of Cassidy. Can you talk about inflation? South Paris, Maine, $325 per cord of red oak. That's delivered to Shea Cassidy. And he's, <laughs> he's popping like eight, nine cords a winter. He's a, Think about that. I mean, it's adding up. It's expensive. But don't you love the smell? The smell's great. The I damn just, dog I is over by the fireplace. The smell. You know, his, his dog's called Elizabeth. We won't go there. And, uh, we won't you know. go there. Jared, thank you. Jared Cassidy of RBC Capital Markets. Thank you, sir. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's get to it, and we do it with an authority that we have had throughout the tournament of the Eastern Mediterranean. Norman Rule joins us now, senior advisor of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and of course, his work for the nation uh, in intelligence. Norman, when I say Lebanon, for all of us of a certain persuasion, we are completely formed by something, frankly, a stunning 40 years ago which is the Beirut barracks bombing when we lost Marines at accountable Iwo Jima level. Where are we now with Lebanon, with Hezbollah? Do we have a relationship or was it forever fractured 40 years ago? That's an excellent uh, point and I regret I remember that incident well um, and lost friends. 
the uh, event of 40 years ago actually had a different message for the world. The U.S. pulled out of Lebanon at that time. And Osama bin Laden later stated that watching the withdrawal of the United States from Lebanon was one of the motivators for him to undertake his operations because he realized the West could be pushed back out of the region. Are we being pushed back now? I mean, within the multiple fronts that Lisa Abramowitz has outlined this morning, Gaza, the West Bank, and again up to the border with Lebanon, is the West, is America being pushed out now? No, we have a very different profile, and indeed diplomacy is likely going to, to increase in intensity in coming weeks because we need to come up with a way to move Lebanese Hezbollah north of the Israeli border so that Israeli citizens can return to their homes, the thousands, tens of thousands of Israeli citizens to open their businesses, go to school, and also so that tens of thousands of Lebanese can return south to that border, which has become such a flashpoint in recent weeks. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of people have been uh, misplaced or displaced as a result of some of the fighting on both sides. But Norman, I'm curious whether this is an escalation. The fact that Israel uh, did attack, according to Hamas, but also with a wink, wink, nod, nod from Israeli officials uh, to kill this Hamas uh, executive. Well, to be clear, Israel has stated from the beginning of the October 7th massacre that it would eradicate the Hamas leadership responsible for that action. And therefore, this is no surprise. I think what you have to look at is this drone attack, which Israel has not admitted but is understood to have undertaken, took place in an incredibly security-conscious neighborhood. And it demonstrates an exquisite and dynamic intelligence capacity. So as Hezbollah thinks about its its, its response to this, it's got to think about what is known around us and what can we get away with and what will happen to the people who might be involved in that attack against Israel. Do you have any sense, Norman, of what the conversations are like with Hamas, with Hezbollah, with the Iranian leadership, given the fact that a lot of people think that they're taking some cues from Iran, that there has been funding from Iran, that you have the Iranian warship going to the Red Sea, and the Houthis, also Iranian-backed, making noise and trying to interrupt Western shipping lines? Iran and its proxies have no strategic drivers to involve themselves more fully in this conflict. It would impact multiple strategic equities for a game that is uncertain, but they have multiple incentives to continue and perhaps raise the intensity of attacks against Israel to show that they have skin in the resistance game. I should also note that today, the January 3rd, is the fourth anniversary of the killing of, of Qasem Soleimani. And that's a day when one would expect uh, 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 Iranian proxies to attack U.S. or Israeli uh, uh, forces just for that symbolic uh, anniversary. Exactly where I wanted to go. Norman, let's talk about it. The assassination of the Major General. It's easy to forget that it ever happened because several weeks later, many weeks later, we were all drowning in a global pandemic. What has happened since then with the relationship between the United States and Iran, between two different White Houses? Very little. The uh, indirect engagement that took place uh, did produce the possibility of uh, of some sort of engagement, a a hostage uh, release by the Iranians in exchange for the release of personnel. But Iran's regional activities did not change. And I don't think the White House expected them to change. More so, Iran's nuclear program has continued to and here's the important point. Iran is now producing enriched uranium at a level that no state that has not pursued a nuclear weapon has ever produced. It has no civilian use for the nature of its current enrichment. So you have to ask yourself the question.
question. Has the West de facto recognized an Iranian military nuclear program? The White House would say no. Right. The facts do raise the question. Norman, a tough way to segue here, but I'm going to do it as one final question. Taiwan continues to come up within our first of the year conversations. Do we have good intelligence on mainland China? The United States intelligence program against China has stated by Sec uh, Central Intelligence Agency head Bill Burns is robust and works significantly. I won't comment on those operations to the extent that I know of them, but I will say that it, this remains such a priority that it's an all-source intelligence program, so it all imagery and a variety of different aspects. We're going to have a good understanding of some of China's activities that will provide the warning policymakers need. Norman, thank you, sir, for the update. Your insight, Brilliant. so valuable. Norman Rule there for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you, sir. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.